1: Hi, listeners. I'm Rob Sachs, Managing Director of Podcasts at Foreign Policy. And this is Foreign Policy Playlist. This week, we're bringing you an FP Live conversation about China's role in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This coincides with FP's Spring Print issue, which talks about China's emergence as a global superpower. In today's discussion, FP's editor-in-chief, Ravi Agrawal, sits down for a discussion with Newsweek Beijing bureau chief, Melinda Liu, and Johns Hopkins University professor, Hao Brands. Just a heads up, this conversation was recorded last week. Here's FP's Ravi Agrawal.
2: Hello, and welcome to FP Live, foreign policy magazine's forum for live journalism. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief, and it's my pleasure to be your host for the next 30 minutes or so. Now, FP's spring print issue was just released online. That's foreignpolicy.com slash magazine. It'll also be in your mailboxes. It's focused on China, looking at the nature of the challenge China presents to the United States and what exactly Washington's policy should be in response. Now, as much of the Western world remains united over the Ukraine conflict, Xi Jinping's China has remained silent, refusing to condemn or recognize Russia's brutal use of force in in Ukraine. What will this mean for the conflict and for the fate of the global order? In a moment, I'll bring in two terrific China experts to discuss exactly this, both are contributors to the print issue as well. Now, since you're here, you know this, but FP Live, of course, is our new and growing platform for live journalism. It's where we bring in experts and insiders to discuss world affairs. Unlike cable TV, there are no ad breaks. We get to dive deep into the issues. It's a perk of your FB subscription to get to ask these experts your questions. So please click on the Q&A button on Zoom and write in. I'll try and get to as many of your questions as we can. Don't forget to tell us your name and which country you're in. So on to the China challenge. Since Vladimir Putin's Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, more than seven weeks ago now, the world has watched with concern to see whether China will help Russia evade sanctions and stabilize its economy. Moscow asked Beijing to give it military equipment and support for its war early on. Notably, after the human rights atrocities that came to light in Bucha, China's state media rushed to defend Russia, echoing Russian claims that the horrific images coming out of Bucha were a hoax. Now, what does Beijing stand to gain in all of this? How will the war in Ukraine impact President Joe Biden's policy on China? And of course, there's still the question of COVID and how China's botched zero COVID policy will impact President Xi Jinping's bid for a third term, that plus Taiwan, much else. To discuss all of these important angles, let's bring in our guests for today, both, as I said, our contributors to our Spring 2022 print edition titled Contest of the Century, Melinda Lu joins us today from Beijing, where she serves as Newsweek's Bureau Chief. She's worked as a foreign correspondent for many years and is the author of Beijing Spring, about the events leading up to the Tiananmen Square protests in 1989. And Hal Brands is the Henry Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies. He is also a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Welcome to FP Live, both of you. Pleasure to have you on. Look, first of all, before I get started, I want to thank you both for your excellent essays in our new print issue. I've got one here. Um, Subscribers, you'll get them in the mail very soon. Um, Hal wrote about why China might be declining as a threat, and Melinda has a terrific piece looking at how Beijing views Biden. Both of those uh, are in the package, and we'll get to them shortly. But before... We move to the print issue and its contents. I wanted to start with a few newsier things. So Hal, I'm going to begin with you. In a different essay for us earlier this month, you pointed out that policymakers are beginning to see China and Russia as an either or. You need to focus on one or the other. But you make the point that the best way for Washington to manage Beijing's challenge is to begin by ensuring Putin's war ends in failure. Um, Explain that a bit.
0: Yeah, that, that's right. And and so I think that we've often found ourselves in the, the debate over how much to prioritize Russia versus how much to prioritize China. And, and that's a necessary debate to have because resources are finite. But I think a couple of things have become clear from this crisis. And the first is just, just how much China needs a strong and assertive Russia basically holding down uh, the eastern flank of Eurasia because it creates distraction that benefits China by pulling U.S. attention and resources uh, away, uh, and because if push were to come to shove, China would really depend on having a friendly uh, Russia in a potential conflict, at least a a sort of benevolent neutrality from Russia and and a conflict with the United States and its its allies. The Ukraine crisis, though, has put China in a very difficult position because uh, the Chinese, I don't think, expected Putin to have as much difficulty as he has had. And if Russia somehow manages to lose this war, either because it simply becomes a very costly stalemate or uh, it actually uh, ends up in a worse position than it started, that presents some difficult dilemmas for Beijing. A weakened Russia is less useful to China as a partner. And if the worst happens and a botched war in Ukraine leads to political instability in Moscow, that that could put at risk the larger relationship. And so the more pressure the United States and its allies can put on Russia as a result of its war in Ukraine right now, the more it sharpens that dilemma for China and makes Mm. China uh, make a a really difficult choice. Do they support Russia more openly and and court all of the international condemnation and probrium that will entail? Or do they stand by and and see the the war run its course, which could be potentially dangerous for Beijing as Mm. well?
2: I want to bring in Melinda, but before I do that, Hal, just very quickly, um, how much of the China-Russia relationship is based on ideology and geopolitics, and how much of it is an actual personal relationship between Xi Jinping and Putin? Well,
0: I think, I think the answer is yes, in the sense that there are very powerful uh, ideological drivers. Both are authoritarian states. They don't particularly like living in a world led by a democratic superpower. There are powerful geopolitical drivers. Both are revisionist powers that are trying to upend the existing international order. But at the top, there does appear to be a fairly close personal bond between Putin and she, There have been dozens of meetings between the two of them. And I think this is one reason why the Chinese worry about political instability in Moscow, because if, if somehow Putin goes, there's no guarantee that who comes next will be as favorable to China as Putin has been.
2: Mm, and there's a lot invested in that. Melinda, let's bring you in. Uh, such a pleasure to have you uh, joining us from Beijing, where, of course, it's increasingly difficult to uh, to um, to find reporters there who are able to 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 speak and write. Um, Xi Jinping is, of course, looking at securing a third term this autumn. And, you know, in many senses, that is the Chinese state's main focus this year. Um, just give us a sense of how the Ukraine war um, is posing a challenge to uh, this very big, important year for Xi Jinping.
3: Thanks, Ravi. And yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, this year was supposed to be an intensely domestic folk domestically politically focused year for xi jinping um it was going to have a bit of a razzle dazzle internationally uh at the beginning because there were the winter olympics um but it was precisely that moment where everyone started going off everything started going off the rails putin turned out to be the main a foreign visit, VIP visitor at the Olympics because there was a a, a boycott, a, a diplomatic boycott of the games um, uh, announced by the U.S. and followed by a number of other Western nations. And then, of course, the invasion of Ukraine. Um, it, it was probably one of the worst things that could happen because it also has now coincided with a, a serious upsurge in COVID as well. The Ukraine thing has... Um, Really, pulled 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 a leg out of underneath what was China's platform up until then, which was trying to be all things to all people. Mm-hmm. Um, they they uh, you, you know during the Trump administration, uh, Xi Jinping came out and and said, "Okay, I'm going to be Mr. Globalization now." Uh, uh, during one of the Davos meetings. Um, even even when covid kind of constricted his movement and he hasn't been out of the country for two years uh he was trying to still uh, have diplomatic um outreach to mm. countries in the belt and road initiative etc cetera, etc cetera. he did not want to see china being labeled as a pariah And yet that is exactly what has happened or or close to, or or a best friend of a pariah. And now everyone's watching China going, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna do the right thing or are you gonna stick with Putin or what? And yet Beijing is still trying to maintain a a posture of being all things to all people. Um, they, They haven't called Russians invasion of of Ukraine an invasion, but they have called it a war. They have called it an attack, and they actually have um, expressed some sympathy, some rhetorical sympathy for uh, Ukraine, Ukrainian civilians who who have been Mm -hmm. uh, killed and wounded. At the same time, they are not, you know, rhetorically, they're still very much a wolf warrior kind of strident nationalist tone uh in a lot of the foreign policy statements um and yet every once in a while we do see something that um softens that a little bit uh they they see they see no contradiction in saying four different things to four different audiences they certainly tried it before the invasion of Ukraine they're still sort of trying to do it now Um, people have described their posture as pro-Russian neutrality, which of course doesn't make sense. It's it's an oxymoron. So um, they're still trying to do that. And why are they trying to do that? Because for several years, they've been preparing for this year to be a year of domestic politics. And they don't want anything to upend that. And yet, the war has upended it, and now the COVID surge has a, a, a really bad COVID surge has upended it. And they're not—they're not used to turning on a dime here. So, right, well, yeah. Xi Jinping, like Putin, probably um, ha- has become very isolated, surrounded by yes men, and possibly not entirely um, up to speed on what's what's going on within the Chinese population.
2: So, Melinda, I want to—I want to come to zero COVID in a second, um, but before I do, just another couple of beats on on Russia, Ukraine. And there's a question in from uh, Matthew uh, Chebataris. Hal, I'm going to put this one to you and then I'll come back to Melinda. And the question is a very good one. Um, Is there a tipping point which would prompt China to condemn Russia's actions in Ukraine? In other words, you know, Melinda laid out sort of the status quo as it stands. Um, But what, if anything, in the next few weeks uh, that goes on in Ukraine or elsewhere would would change the status quo of confusion that she's describing out. It's
0: almost inconceivable to me that Putin could do something that would precipitate outright condemnation from the Chinese government as as opposed to sort of the very mealy-mouthed expressions of, of sympathy for Ukrainian citizens that that Melinda Pointed to because, you know, if if China turns away from Russia, who does it turn toward? China has no other meaningful partners. It has alienated over the past couple of years in particular, almost every advanced democracy in the world. This is perhaps the most important relationship for Xi Jinping. And it will become more so as China becomes more estranged from from other countries and and from the, the West. And so, I, it would take something so dramatic, you know, use of battlefield nuclear weapons or something like that, that our concern about China's position w- would then be the least of our worries because the crisis would have gotten so much
2: bigger in Ukraine. indeed. And uh, very quickly, before I come back to Melinda, um, Taiwan, what what changes um, for you know China's calculus, Uh, on Taiwan, given what it's seen in terms of the world's response to Ukraine uh, in the last seven, eight weeks? I think
0: there's two stories we can tell ourselves here. One is reassuring and one is decidedly not reassuring. The reassuring one is that China has seen the unity of the democratic world. It's seen the sanctions and the diplomatic isolation that has been imposed on Putin. It's seen the performance of U.S. and Western intelligence. And it says, boy, we don't want to try something like that. And and we've seen how you know even the Ukrainians can pose a lot of problems for the Russian military. And and so uh, an invasion of Taiwan might be more than we can handle. That's the reassuring story. I think that's the story we like to think the Chinese are telling themselves. The other story, which seems to me just as plausible, is they might be telling themselves that Putin's mistake was not to go in heavier and more decisively at the outset and, and to give Ukraine a chance to resist, which then bought time for the rest of the world to respond. And so it's at least as plausible to me that the lesson might be, if you're going to use force against Taiwan, do it massively, decapitate the government uh, and try to win within a few days and short circuit the international response. Fascinating.
2: Uh, Melinda, I'll bring you back in now. Um, uh, first, I mean, you know, just on the Taiwan issue, what's what's your sense of, of the mood in Beijing if, if, if it is something that you can discern from where you are?
3: Yeah. Um, from here, it, it, it did even, okay, even pre-invasion, it did not seem that Beijing was in a big hurry to invade mm. Taiwan. Um, I think if anything, and I agree with Hal on this point, uh, they, this, what they've seen in Ukraine has been a very sobering uh, experience. Mm. I think it, it possibly has put the timetable back. Why do I say that? you know I, I i've been i've been living and working um uh in beijing for more than 20 years um non in this posting and i was here in an earlier posting as well um they're they're not ready for this i the the people's liberation Army mm. has does some things uh well um missile savant you know they do things with missiles okay fine but amphibious landing They might be practicing that. We know that they have been. They might be thinking about it. They might be trying to figure out how other people do it. But the fact is, China has not had a a real wartime situation since a minor border incursion in Vietnam in in the 70s. And in that war, guys were running between tank commanders, to pass on Mm. commands i mean it was like they didn't even Mm. have modern communications so they're watching they're learning they're trying to improve and they have of course improved tremendously but i did not see um any sense of urgency then and i think if anything what's happened now is um very sobering and again they don't want to they don't want to add more to this very complicated and, and hmm. risky plate of domestic Ch- Chinese challenges that they have now. The political challenges they want to hmm. they want to sort that out first. After once that is sorted out, you know, if Xi Jinping a year from now is riding high in his third term, comfortably situated, ask me again, and I might have a different a different.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that that resonates as well here. Um, When 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 I meet Chinese officials in the West, uh, that is very much the message I get as well, especially over the last few months, given the focus on on the importance of 2022 for the Chinese
1: state. You're listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. We'll be right back.
0: Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman.
3: I think that with the country is in flames already, we are headed toward the end of the American project. The
0: ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and seek the truth with an open mind
2: um i want to remind all our viewers that we're happy to take some of your questions you can hit the zoom button uh type in your name your country uh and your question we'd be happy to take some of them um i want to pivot a little bit at this point we'll come to the print issue shortly but we've got to talk about zero covid um and our um our, our our deputy editor, James Palmer, who writes uh, China Brief, if you haven't signed up for it yet, I, I urge you to, it's a great newsletter, um, has been describing, um, you know, horrific scenes in Shanghai where there have been draconian lockdowns and resulting shortages of food um, that seem like scenes from another era. Um, Melinda, as an outsider sitting here in New York, it it clearly seems like things haven't gone as planned. Um, but what's the larger mood inside China? Is there anger?
3: There, There's definitely anger and, and growing anger in Shanghai. There's, there's probably a lot of dissatisfaction in other cities, but we're not hearing it so much. Um, part of what makes the situation very unsettling, I think, to the Beijing leadership is that Shanghai has always... Been and seen itself to be China's most uh, economically vibrant um, city, uh, financial center, uh, sophisticated, um, even a little bit arrogant about that. And these are not people who want to be starving or feel, you know, or even, you know, missing the food that they want to have. They don't want to be given a bag of vegetables uh in fact I, i've seen pictures myself of someone who has delivered a bag of vegetables by their local authorities great that's good to get it's not enough but this one had a snake in it um and of course the joke went around well at least it's protein uh but this is not what shanghai people are used to and um the fact mm-hmm. is that a lot of them had become very accustomed to Uh, getting anything they want delivered very quickly by delivery people on motorbikes or in little cars and things. And yet all of those, uh, many of those guys are under lockdown too. So the deliveries are frozen. Um, Traditionally, Chinese people often went shopping every day to buy fresh vegetables. They didn't have a whole tradition of storing uh, or having canned vegetables or anything like that. So Um, these are people who are whose lives are being very much impacted and they're not used to it and they're being very vocal about it Um, yelling from you know from their windows uh, at night um, and even scuffling yes there have been protests and there have been people who the latest was uh, uh, just a few I got the news just a few hours ago of um, a community who started fighting with police and and people in full hazmat gear who were trying to set up a quarantine center near their neighborhood and they didn't want that there and, and wow. they, they uh started fighting now what makes this really uh, puts us into uncharted territory is that Shanghai, Shanghai is also a very political city in the sense that mm. because of its economic role its financial role it's um outward you know, it's very cosmopolitan very connected with the with the outside world um it, it there are many leaders in china who have been identified in the past as being part of a shanghai faction you know the hmm. you know often shanghai is the last testing ground in terms of a, of a uh a subnational posting before you you know become a a national leader hmm okay so some people think there's some kind of political element here that um mm. that the leaders in beijing want you know they xi jinping has staked his legacy on zero a zero COVID strategy you know meaning wiping out every single instance of of COVID infection whether it's asymptomatic or serious or not and some cities Shanghai included had been trying to um, be a little more surgical about their lockdowns maybe being a little bit more nuanced in their application of it um it got out of hand in Shanghai and now it might be that Beijing leaders want to teach Shanghai a lesson and give them a warning um when we say lockdown we hmm. lockdown and if you don't do it we will do it for you uh it's it's it, it's it's quite interesting the amount of criticism that's being targeted Mm. directed at shanghai shanghai city uh municipal authorities for not not having their act together and of course there are many cities in china that are under lockdown now um Mm. but they're not as big they're not as cosmopolitan they're not as important and people aren't as focused on them. I I wouldn't be surprised if we had some even more horrific or equally horrific stories coming out of some of these other places. Um,
2: Wow. Well, that's definitely something to look out for in the coming weeks uh, and months. And also, I guess the question a lot of us will be asking is, at what point does that anger um, turn into political pressure of any sorts? Uh, We know, of course, as you said, uh, Chinese state policy doesn't change on a dime uh, and Xi Jinping has staked his legacy on this. So very interesting to look out for. Um, I wanna pivot a teeny bit now to our print issue. As promised, um, I've got it right here. It's called uh, the contest of the century. Melinda's very kindly um, got one of the issues um, uh, sort of behind her, thank you for that. Um, But Hal, I want to bring you in now to talk about your essay um, in this print issue. Um, And, you know, there's been a long line of thinkers who've said that China's peaked and it's now going to decline since the 90s. This time, however, you think there's real merit to that argument. And that's that's what you write about in the China issue. Explain why, why are the declinists right this time?
0: Yeah, this this time, it's real, I I promise. Um, So (laughs) the the base, the basic argument is, is that we need to disaggregate what we mean when we say decline. And so countries can be rising and declining at the same time, you can have it takes time, for instance, for a country to convert economic power into military power, a country can be building up militarily, even after its economy has peaked. And so the the argument I I make in the piece, which draws on a, a book that's coming out later this year. Is basically that that China may be more dangerous than we think because it's actually weaker than we think. I think the the best days of the Chinese economy are behind it and have been behind it for a number of years. In fact, COVID has simply accentuated what was already a pretty significant slowing of the Chinese growth rate. And uh, at at some point this decade, it may already be happening China's population is going to peak and China is going to start experiencing one of the worst peacetime demographic implosions in history, which is going to make uh, fast growth very difficult uh, to restore. And so as as a result of this, if Chinese leaders look out 15 years into the future, I I don't know how confident they can be about China's trajectory. The problem, of course, is that one area where Chinese power continues to grow rapidly is in the military sphere. Mm. And, And China has developed much more potent coercive capabilities now than it had 25 years ago, or even a decade ago, or even five years ago. Now, now Melinda is, is certainly right that it's it's unclear how ready the PLA is for some of the more complex operations that it might face. But the danger, uh, and this has happened a few times uh, in history, is that when countries start to peak and they start to worry about what the long term trajectory looks like, they sometimes become more willing to take risks and use force in the near term to grab what they can and to achieve the aims they've set out while they can. And so it, it may be that, you know, even though we're thinking about the US-China relationship as a the contest of the century or a superpower marathon or whatever you want to call it, we're entering the more dangerous phase of that rivalry in the next few years.
2: That is just fascinating, but also scary. Um, Melinda, very quick. Yes, no. Do, from where you're sitting in Beijing, does it feel like China's peaked? Um.
3: I personally think peak China was probably 2008. Uh, oh, for wow. me, For me, there's there's been a dramatic difference between the Summer Olympics of 2008 and the Winter Olympics of 2022. Uh, the mood was very different. And of course, 2022 took place during a pandemic that uh, that had a huge dampening effect. Mm. Um, but the you know, one of the biggest differences is the demographics. Um, you know, back in those days, it seemed like there were endless young and vigorous um, rural Chinese hmm. uh, looking for jobs. Uh, there were many, many college graduates coming out and they needed jobs. And there was a, you know, a big concern about job job uh, production, you know, just, uh, just hmm. jobs for all these young people. There are not. That many young people now I mean, compared right. to men is right. dramatic and that's why now we're seeing some rather the paradox of now people um even being given financial subsidies if they can have a third child well mm. have we already forgotten that there was a very stringent one child policy with some women being given forced abortions and there were financial penalties to people who exceeded that okay now everyone's saying okay. Forget about that. Now we want you to have as many kids as you can. And whoops, not too many. Couples are want to because it's become hugely expensive to educate children, to raise and educate children. And so mm-hmm. um the big, one of the biggest differences is demographics. And if that can, if that can't be um offset somehow. I mean, some people think AI, uh robotics, you know, can help fill the gap um i think there's going to be a lot of changes here um i think uh i think the 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 peaking of of china has been um in the works for a number of years and wow. what we're seeing this year is a perfect storm of bad bad stuff for china so you know I, and i can't i actually can't predict because the one thing that nobody really knows who's outside of it is uh, what's going on in those opaque halls those opaque corridors of power uh in terms of internal politics what what is going on in xi jinping's mind um it it's a notoriously opaque and secret and 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 paranoid world that Mm. he's in and um probably uh even more so than the Vatican, probably, you know, and maybe we're young, wow. young levels of secrecy here. So people don't really know what's going on, but it feels. Really-
2: and, and on that, Melinda, actually, I wanted to sort of use that as a segue to come to your uh, essay uh, and, and uh, all of the points you make uh, about decline and and agreeing with HAL are just spot on. Uh, the, the only thing I'd, I'd point out is of course, the, the winter Olympics in general tend to be, uh, less of a big deal than Summer Olympics, uh, just, just a minor thing there. But but uh, on your essay, um, which was, I thought, just brilliant, um, how Beijing views Biden, and I was struck from reading it that in the way that you describe it, and I urge our readers to to look at it, but the way you describe it is that Xi Jinping has a very clear sense of who Biden is and what his constraints are, um we have nowhere near the, the same level of understanding of who she is and what his constraints are and in a sense from reading it um my takeaway was that beijing probably knows biden as well as the blob in dc does
3: yes um i i i think i i think that's helpful because um no matter how bad the bilateral relationship is um xi jinping has indeed spent an uh, a lot of time with Biden and Biden has spent a lot of time talking about America America's philosophy his philosophy uh, what is democracy how does how does the country work he's he's actually talked a lot and the okay the the national policies are one thing but but in China there's something called personal guanxi it's it's a word for relationships but it has a lot more meaning as well and it's a it 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 suggests a comfort level now of course there the Biden that Xi Jinping knew when both of them were vice presidents because that's when mo- they spent most of their time together is not the same Biden that we see today and the, it's not the same Xi Jinping we see today either i mean no one in those days 12 years ago predicted that Xi Jinping would start veering off to in, towards some kind of personality cult a la Mao Zedong. Um, he was not seen as that sort of leader at all at the time. So here we've got Indeed. two guys. They know each other very well, um, but th- they haven't spent that much time together for quite a while. and. Uh, I think it still allows them to have a a, a certain level of um i wouldn't say trust necessarily because i don't think xi jinping trusts a lot of people but uh it is certainly a certain level of expectation and a certain level of comfort in terms of relating with each other Mm. and i've got to say i think xi jinping's relationship with putin is a marriage of convenience I don't think there's a lot of trust there either. Um, they're in the same bed, but there's a Chinese proverb of lying in the same bed, dreaming different dreams. I don't think that they're entirely lockstep <laughs> step with each other either. Um, I think it, it suits Xi Jinping very much t- to have a close relationship, a close and stable and predictable relationship with Russia so that that extensive border, the Sino-Russian border is not a problem for for right but um you know the the nightmare that that would provoke something from xi jinping something serious maybe even a move on taiwan or something is if there were a coup in moscow
2: right in, in, right because, yeah. Well, I want to bring in some of our um, viewer questions at this point. Uh, and that was a that, that was a great Chinese proverb, uh, Melinda. It's it's just fascinating um, uh, Hal, I'm going to put this to you. Um, in fact, I'll take a couple together. Um, Michael Dodd asks, what are the prospects of nuclear proliferation after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, given the common perspective that Ukraine made a mistake in giving up its nuclear program pursuant to the Budapest uh, Memorandum. That's Michael Dodd. And then as you mull that one, Hal, uh, D. Dean, um, who's in the USA, um, says, with respect to Ukraine, some speculate a prolonged war draining Russia, similar to the Soviet experience in Afghanistan, could serve U.S. interests, in part by harming China. How would you assess this speculation?
0: So on on the first issue, since 1945, there have been two good ways of not getting invaded. One of them is to have nuclear weapons. The other one is to have a treaty relationship with the United States. And so I think there are a number of countries that worry about their security in a significant way. Many of them are either already treaty allies of the United States, they're very close security partners with the United States. And so while there may be proliferation pressures, countries have alternative means of of dealing with those things. And so I, I wouldn't, for instance, expect to see South Korean nuclear weapons come out of the Ukraine crisis, because, you know, South Korea has the other way that you traditionally defended yourself. On on the second issue, you know, it, it, it really depends. And, and so there would be certain advantages to the United States from uh, the scenario of a long war that, that bleeds Russia and drains its resources. Now, of course, there are significant moral cost to that in the sense that it's not the United States that will be paying the the price except in a minor economic sense of a prolonged war. it'll be Ukrainian civilians and of course there's also the, the challenge that the longer the war goes on, perhaps the more chance there is that Russia might escalate in a way that would either expand the war or create other dangerous consequences use of, of chemical weapons, use of tactical nuclear weapons, whatever, whatever the case may be simply, Escalation to higher levels of brutality vis-a-vis the civilian population, and, and so I don't I don't think it's necessarily a clear-cut one way or another sort of thing. I think there there are risks associated with the longer war, even though it might serve a U.S. strategic interest and in ensuring that Russia comes out of this conflict weakened.
2: Um, Hal, you know, I've been wondering, and I sort of riffed on this on my, in my editor's note and the print issue, but there's a very interesting global picture that, that we're seeing emerging out of Putin's war. So on the one hand, much of the West is united in its response, but that is simply not true of the rest of the world. If you If you look at the populations of countries, some of the world's biggest nations, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, even Indonesia to some extent, um, and that's a quarter of the world's population right there, you add in China, you know, and you're you're above a third, all of them remain on the fence in terms of even condemning Russia or naming Russia. So in a sense, a majority of the world's population seems closer in stance to China than to the West. And how do you think Beijing is watching those reactions? And, and what would its reaction be?
0: I'm I'm sure they're watching very closely. And I would imagine one one lesson you can draw from it is that, you know, you might face costs from the advanced democracies if you do thing X that annoys them. But that doesn't mean you'll face costs from the rest of the world. And that doesn't mean that countries in Southeast Asia and Africa and Latin America will sever ties with you. And in fact, the Chinese are probably less worried about that in the first place, because the Chinese economy is, is so much it's stronger and more globally integrated and more diversified than the Russian economy is. And so I'm not sure that the Chinese really believe that uh, the United States and its allies can do to China what they have done to Russia in this context to begin with. But I think the broader point is that in in some ways the war has accentuated the fundamental dividing line in international politics between the advanced democracies that support the existing international system and the Eurasian autocracies that are trying to undermine it. But it's also, I think, sharpened the dilemmas for a variety of, of countries that basically say we, we want no part of this, that that this is just, it's not our fight. This is, you know, in some cases they view it sort of as a fight between empires and, and Europe. In some cases, they're simply saying we don't necessarily have a dog in, in this fight. And it's it's not an entirely unfamiliar situation. There are certain parallels to the stance of non-aligned countries during the, the Cold War. And so there it has introduced, I think, a complexity into the global situation that American policymakers are going to have to grapple with in the future.
2: Yeah, I mean, not since the 60s, I think, has the phrase non-aligned been used uh, as much as it has in the last two or three weeks, I think. Um, Melinda, um, I'll close with you. Um, You know, so much of the discourse over the last few weeks has been around mis- and disinformation in Russia. The fact that so much of what what Putin could do um, was because of internal propaganda and the fact that Internally, so many Russians even now believe that uh, their country is doing the right thing. Um, talk us through a little bit about the mood in China. Does it feel to you that um, people, uh, you know, the middle classes are living in an information bubble?
3: Um, of course, China, China is the Chinese leadership is trying to make this an, an information bubble. They have a firewall. Um, They're probably wondering why Russia didn't do it sooner. But um, but what we have seen since the since the invasion is that uh, the propaganda, the respective propaganda machines of Russia and China are, you know, are are doing their thing. They're you know, they're they're mirroring each other. They're trying to um, uh, spread the same disinformation with the same content. but but of course, the the, the in China there are um, I would say kind of some loopholes. There are people who can get around the firewall. There are there are social media um, platforms that where relatively outspoken things can circulate for a period of time. Censorship always roots them out eventually but once they are out there people know enough to kind of capture them and spread them around i mean i i've been getting um uh documents from friends who uh you know as soon as they see something uh slightly sensitive they 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 save it they print it out or they send it to me in, in ways that um are not mm-hmm. are not detectable by by uh, some of the technological means and i think what's What uh, the leadership has to be very concerned about, Um, even though they've, you know, COVID-19 has has been the best friend of Big Brother surveillance Hmm. systems. But what they have to worry about is that you've got two things happening that worry China. One is Ukraine, of course, but one is COVID. And COVID is something that Chinese... just about every chinese would be thinking about worrying about and many of them are now inconvenienced by it and they're going to social media and complaining about it and it's very difficult when you get to that level it's difficult to just disappear all those messages they might be censored Mm. um you know it's it's the same thing
2: and this isn't a niche issue this is affecting everyone
3: this is like bread and butter issues this is like whether you have enough food whether you have enough you know whether whether you're, you can have a pet dog without having it beat mm. to death on the street because you've been taken away to co- quarantine. It's it, it, you know, we've infringed on um, areas that Chinese citizens, uh, you know, for decades now, have felt that they had some uh, uh, authority over that they had, you know, mm. uh, food, uh, what what I want to buy, you know, what kind of pet do I want to have. Human rights, everything else, of course, we know that's, you know, that's on a different level. And that's, um, you know, there have been a lot of reports about human rights abuses in Xinjiang. Sure. Sort of thing, But Chinese are, you know, they thought they had the right to decide how much they could eat and what they could eat and when they could eat it and what kind of pets they could have, what kind of, um, you know, if they want to go out and party. And then, you know, they, they thought they had the right to do those things.
2: And so essentially what you're saying then is that um, this year could upend much of that social compact um, because they're hitting at bread and butter issues um, and and personal things at home. Uh, Melinda, I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there because I I promised a 30 minute discussion and we've gone, we've gone over, but Hal Brands, Melinda Liu, uh, and Melinda, especially for joining from Beijing at this hour, Thank you so much. It was great to have you both on. And I also want to plug both of your essays once again in our new uh, print issue. You can all find that online, foreignpolicy.com backslash magazine. Two great essays from Hal Brands and Melinda Liu. Thank you to both of you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Our FP Live conversation today was moderated by FP Editor-in-Chief Ravi Akerwal. For more information, please head to foreignpolicy.com. And we are running a great promotion right now where, if you subscribe to FP before May 1st, we'll send you a copy yes, a real life copy of a magazine. It's our 2022 spring issue, which focuses all about China. It's a great read and it's a great offer here at Foreign Policy. The promotion applies to monthly, annual, and gift subscriptions, so everyone is covered. To get this great promotion and to view our plans, go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and enter the code PLAYLIST at checkout to save 15%. As always, we appreciate your support and couldn't do the journalism we do without it. Our show is produced by Zimone Perez, Maria Jimenez-Aragon, and Rosie Julen. Thanks so much for listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. Until next week, I'm Rob Sachs.
0: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts, and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts
0: everywhere. Acast.com.